Welcome to Crump Insights, exploring timely life insurance and retirement planning topics for today's forward-thinking financial professionals. In this episode, we'll explore the implications of the Conley versus United States case and how it relates to business and estate planning. I'm Brian Bushlack, your host for this series and an active life and health insurance producer. Joining us, John Whitaker, JD, CLU, CHFC, Director, Advanced Sales at Crump Life Insurance Services. Well, John, thanks for joining us. There's been a lot of coverage of the Conley case this summer. Don't want to assume that everybody knows what we're talking about here. So before we dive into this, could you please explain what all this publicity is about? Sure thing, Brian. So this is a case about a buy-sell agreement. This case is actually somewhat narrow. It does not apply to all buy-sell arrangements, but only to ones with two distinguishing features. Uh, It's A, an entity purchase buy-sell agreement, and B, the entity involved is a corporation, uh, either a C corporation or an S corporation. So uh, this is a, a case involving a dispute between the business owners and the IRS about what the value of the company was uh, when one of the shareholders passed away. So what we had here was a business owned by two brothers, Michael and Thomas Connolly. Uh, Michael owned the majority share of around 77% of the company. So the two brothers, you know, they decided to enter into a wait and see buy-sell agreement What that means, it's the kind of buy-sell agreement that sort of incorporates both traditional structures. The surviving brother would have the first option to buy the deceased brother's interest. That's the cross-purchase feature. And if he didn't exercise that option, then the corporation was required to redeem the decedent's remaining interest. And that's the entity purchase feature. So when they put this in place, uh, that's a pretty common structure to draft agreements. It gives a lot of flexibility. But uh, the brothers, I think, pretty clearly intended to uh, not exercise their option and and treated this like an entity purchase arrangement the whole time. After they did the drafting, they went ahead and the corporation purchased a three and a half million dollar life insurance policy on each brother's life. And the corporation was the owner and beneficiary of each policy, like you would expect to see in your typical entity purchase buy sell agreement. They did buy the same amount of coverage, even though uh, Michael, the brother who who did pass away, only or owned seventy seven percent of the company, and Thomas, the surviving brother, only owned twenty three percent. Now, under the buy sell agreement, it said that the company should be valued every year by a certified value. Well, that's basically where the shareholders just agreed amongst themselves what the value of the company is, and they declare that amount in writing every year. The agreement also said if they never did this or if they hadn't done it recently, then they would use an appraisal method to value the company, which they would hire a couple of appraisers and see what they came up with. Well, the brothers never exercised a certified value, and then Michael eventually died. Uh, He, remember, was the 77% owner. His brother, Thomas, was the remaining shareholder. Thomas was also the executor of Michael's estate, so he was very involved. Thomas, uh, in his capacity as the surviving shareholder, caused the corporation to redeem Michael's entire interest, his whole 77%, for $3 million. Now, remember, the company actually held a life insurance policy for $3.5 million, so the remaining $500,000 of insurance proceeds stayed inside the corporation. They used $3 million for the buyout and kept the other $500 inside the corporation. 
So Thomas caused the corporation to redeem Michael's entire interest for $3 million. Uh, the remaining 500000 uh, stayed inside the corporation. So let's unpack what the decision was here. What was the actual decision that made this such a big talking point this summer? Well, there were two issues, but the primary issue that really makes this case significant is whether in a corporate entity purchase by cell structure, the amount of the redemption of the deceased owner's interest, does it offset the value of any life insurance proceeds that were owned by and received by the company? Because it's important to note that all the parties agreed that the life insurance did inflate the value of the company. So therefore, the only issue is whether the company's obligation to redeem Michael's shares would reduce the company's value by that amount in a sense, offset any life insurance used to fund the redemption. And what was the actual decision here that came into question? So, you know, the court actually held that the redemption obligation did not offset the value of the life insurance proceeds received by the company. And therefore, the value of the company for estate tax purposes had to include the entire death benefit that the company received. Very interesting. What other issues arise here? Maybe talk about pegging uh, for estate tax purposes. That was it. And the court actually, it's interesting, spent a lot of time on this issue because it's a very fact-specific issue and analysis. But that was the second question. So there's a sort of a a thought out there that if you draft a buy-sell agreement, it can quote-unquote peg the value of the business on your estate tax return. And if it does, then the estate can file the return, use that value, determine on their buy-sell agreement, and they don't have to worry about an IRS challenge. Or if the IRS does challenge it, the estate should win. But there are generally five requirements for a buy-sell agreement to peg the business's value for estate tax purposes. You might see it described as six in some cases, but that repeats some of the uh, factors. So here's really the requirements you need. Number one, it has to be a bona fide business arrangement. Number two, it cannot be a device to transfer property to relatives for less than adequate and full consideration. So we can't try to be just passing our company off to our family for less than full value. Three, the agreement must contain terms similar to those present in other agreements entered into in an arm's length transaction. Fourth, and this is important, the agreement itself must contain a fixed or determinable price And the last one is that the agreement must be legally binding on the parties during life and after death. So after going through these requirements and looking at the facts, the court held that the Connolly Brothers buy-sell agreement did not peg the corporation's value because it did not meet the requirements. I think this is pretty non-controversial. It's always a good refresher to maybe read through these parts of the cases and re-familiarize ourselves with the rules. But uh, yeah, that wasn't shocking that the court said, no, this does not peg the value for estate tax purposes. And we're going to have to go through the exercise of determining that value right here. You know, John, people say things such as this case was decided the way that it was due to, quote unquote, bad facts. Is this true? Well, it's interesting because, uh, yes, this case has bad facts. I don't know if, if that's why the case was decided the way it was. So it's a bit of a yes or no. There definitely were some bad facts. I mean, the brothers never did that certified value while they were alive, not even once. Then at Michael's death, Thomas completely disregarded the terms of the agreement because he just uh, negotiated with Michael's son 
that they would do the redemption for $3 million. And they never obtained the appraisal that the agreement said they were supposed to get if they hadn't done the certified value. Another bad fact was that Thomas was the only surviving shareholder and also the executor of Michael's estate. So he was sitting on both sides of the transaction, which doesn't make it arm's length. Also, kind of read, they didn't delve into the fact specifics too much, but the court definitely indicated that there was some kind of dispute between Thomas and his role as executor and Michael's son, and that the $3 million redemption price that those two agreed on might have been related to some disputes over how uh, Thomas was administering the estate. Uh, and so they cut this $3 million agreement, uh, this is where we're going to pay for the company, help solve some of those other issues. So in other words, the redemption price might not have been related to the value of the company at all, but more just a number they needed to make Michael's son go away. The thing is that almost all of these bad facts, you know, exclusively apply to the issue of pegging the value for state tax purposes. These are all the reasons why the court rejected the value and said, we're going to have to do the value ourselves. That's not the most important ruling on this case, though. So that's why I say I don't think it was really decided due to bad facts, because the, the most important thing of this case is that the redemption obligation, according to this court, does not offset the value. And that didn't really relate to those bad facts other than, you know, judges are people, too. Uh, you know, they try to be objective, but maybe they were biased a little bit against the estate. I mean, this seems pretty clear. You, you have one shareholder who's running everything enters an agreement with the decedent's son, you know, they're related. It just, you know, that was really all about, you know, just it kind of seemed clear that the intent was to pass this company on to Thomas as the surviving shareholder based on the best way to get that done, not based on what it was worth. And when the court discussed the reasoning behind ignoring the redemption obligation when valuing the company, they didn't really go into these bad facts. They just stuck with the legal arguments. They looked at the argument of what is an obligation, what does that really mean? How does it affect the value? So, you know, the bad facts, I think, affected the pegging the value are, uh, issue. But the issue of whether the redemption offsets the value of the life insurance for state tax purposes, I think that was sound and not really had anything to do with the facts. Yeah, I would expect all of the advisors who have downloaded this podcast to be sharing it with uh, their clients who fall into this situation because so many of them in these closely held family businesses, particularly the small, small businesses like this one, where it's all intertwined. It's the brothers, it's the business, it's all of this stuff. And then, you know, something like this pops up and you run into trouble. Is this the law of the land now? Tell us where we go from here. Yeah, unfortunately, the answer to that is not exactly. And the answer is a little complicated. So this case created a jurisdictional split. So the court that rendered this decision is the Court of Appeals for the Eighth Circuit. There was a case decided in the past in the Eleventh Circuit called Blount, which analyzed the same issue but came to the opposite conclusion. And in the Connolly case, you know, the Eighth Circuit looked at the court's reasoning in Blount and disagreed with them. So they went a different direction. So the law is going to depend on what court is hearing the case and where it's located. The split is even more complicated because of the way the tax litigation works. When the IRS audits a taxpayer, if the taxpayer disagrees and they can't reach a settlement, they can go to court. The taxpayer has two options on where to file their case. They can go to the tax court, which is a national court that only handles tax cases, or they can go to their local federal district court, which handles cases of all types of disputes. You know, they could be looking at uh, a tax case one day, 
Next day, a contract dispute between two corporations. The next day, a personal injury lawsuit by a driver against a trucking company from an accident on an interstate. The district court is focusing on a lot of different things, not just tax. And then if either party doesn't agree with the decision, both of these initial courts lead up to the court of appeals in that circuit. So why would you you know, have two different courts? Well, the tax court is sort of the default. Anyone can go to the tax court. You hear your case. And if you lose, you pay the IRS after it's over. The district court is different. The only way you can make it into district court is if you pay the amount of the tax deficiency in advance and then you sue the government and district court for a refund. So the tax court is available to everyone. The district court is only available to the people with the means and the willingness to pay the tax in advance and then go try to get it back. Why would you do this? Well, because the district court doesn't focus solely on tax cases and they focus on a lot of other things. There's a school of thought out there that maybe district court judges are a little more susceptible to all types of creative and unique arguments that taxpayers come up with to justify their positions. And maybe these arguments wouldn't fly as well in the tax court because those judges are experts in the subject matter and they've seen everything at this point. So there is some bit of form shopping at play. Uh, and some people feel that if you, it's worth it to pay the tax up front and then try to go get it back in the district court, that's what the taxpayers try here. It didn't work out for them in this case, though, as the district court actually and then the Court of Appeals on appeal uh, confirmed it and they sided with the IRS. Well, you go district court, too. You basically, you know, you paid it. So it's been settled and then you're seeking that refund. So, I mean, it looks like a stronger position, but hopefully we avoid court, right, John? I mean, that's the point of what we all do is to put our clients in the best position to avoid this type of scenario. And I want to ask you about, you know, what could have been done here or should have been done by the brothers or their advisors to hopefully avoid this. And, you know, the first thing that comes to mind is the executor of the estate and, you know, kind of the co-mingling of that really is what taints this case. I mean, it looks bad, doesn't it? Yeah. So, uh, you know, there are some things that people can do to try to avoid this. Um, I agree. You know, it's, it's difficult because, you know, with these cases, it's hard to avoid family members being involved when you have a family run company. And so is it possible even to get independent fiduciaries in the process? I'm not even sure. I will say the best way to avoid it, though, is is to follow the formalities of the agreement. I think Thomas, being the executor and uh, surviving sole surviving shareholder, would have been less of a big deal if he would have followed the formalities of the agreement uh, instead of just sort of ad hocing everything and doing it on the fly. Yep. But as far as the actual issue of if you have an entity purchase buy sell with a corporation in the Eighth Circuit. The life insurance will increase the value of the company and the redemption obligation will not offset that. I think that is just blah, now after this decision, black letter law based on sound legal reasoning. And, you know, the, the bad facts aren't going to save you there. You just have to actually avoid putting that kind of structure into place. So if you have a C corporation or an S corporation, you may want to look at a cross-purchase agreement instead that's not subject to this ruling because the insurance is owned by the shareholders, not the corporation. Perhaps looking at an insurance LLC structure, that's where the buy-sell is designed as a cross-purchase, but a separate LLC is created as a warehouse to hold all the insurance policy. And that insurance LLC is classified as a partnership 
for federal tax purposes. And partnerships are subject to completely different rules on this issue than corporations are. And so that's why the insurance LLC specifically uses the partnership structure and uh, the rulings that the creators of that structure got from the IRS indicated that if you follow their format, the death benefit will stay out of the uh, insurance estate. So those are probably the best two ideas. Stick to cross-purchase, do an insurance LLC, or, you know, for some businesses, maybe this isn't a big problem. You know, uh, depending on the value of the business, the numbers we're talking about, the size of the estate, increasing the value of the company might not generate an estate tax, but they need to be aware of this so that they're making that conscious decision to stick with their entity purchase. But if not, uh, one of the other structures would be a better fit and keep those proceeds out of the decedent's estate. Okay, you just answered the question I know I had and probably every advisor listening to this. How do you create sort of a trust without it being a trust for a business that's outside the business to accomplish what a trust would accomplish, an islet, right? It's the insurance LLC. So that's a partnership that's outside of the business. So then that funds this transaction. Is there any gift issue with that or any tax issue by doing that that you have to address? You have to follow the tax rules, but they're very favorable when they come when it comes to partnerships. And I'm glad you mentioned the idea of a trust uh, because traditionally, uh, you know, there was an idea called a trustee buy sell agreement where people actually did create a trust and contribute to the business and the policies to it. And that was used sort of similar to what an insurance LLC does now. My opinion, an insurance LLC is a better and more sound structure. Okay. And so I think, yeah, that's really the best way to go these days. It's a business, bona fide business arrangement uh, entered into at arm's length. So there's no gifting issues. You just have to be working with someone who's able to do the partnership accounting, which I would think all business CPAs and CFOs are comfortable with. And the partnership accounting is going to be extremely simple uh, for this entity because it's not an actual operating business. So, you know, yeah, the insurance LLC works because partnerships have favorable tax rules, but uh, but you do need to follow those rules. But, uh, you know, as long as everything is done properly, yeah, no, should be no gifting issues, no unforeseen estate tax issues and no unfortunate income tax issues either. Well, for goodness sakes, maybe at least have your attorney or your CPA act as the executor on some piece of this, right? So that there's another, you know, you want to create that arm's length transaction. I mean, that's one way to do it is not to be involved, right? Yeah. You know, to the extent you can, I think, yeah, including independent people in those fiduciary positions is always helpful. But I also think, you know, the rule of law here is probably good, even though we have a split in the circuits. My own personal opinion is that between the two approaches, Connolly is actually the correct one based on legal reasoning and the law. So I think that you're always going to have this issue, certainly in the Eighth Circuit, and my belief would be elsewhere. This is also the tax court rule. So, you know, I think that having the independent fiduciaries is good, but really just understanding how the rules work and drafting the structure in the, in the best way in the first place is probably the best line of attack. And if you have the right structure and you follow all the formalities, you'll probably be okay, even with you know brothers and, and siblings and other folks acting as executors and whatnot. Yeah. I mean, it's just math, right? I mean, if you've got a, a business at around $3 million and you have $3 million in life insurance, and the business owns that policy, and then there's a death, well, then there's obviously $6 million, right? I mean, it's three plus three, right? So, I mean, I could see how a court would look at that that way, right? 
Yeah, and that's the regulations too. You know, the twenty section twenty forty two is this is the code section, the statute that causes insurance proceeds to be included in the insured estate in most situations. And the regulations underneath that specifically talk about corporate owned life insurance and basically say what you just said that yes, it's added to the value of the company. So yeah, that part's pretty pretty clear. And the only question was whether, you know, this buy sell agreement that said well, the corporation has to take that $3 million and buy out the decedent's interest, does that actually reduce the value? And it does not. And the court explained that it does not because it doesn't really reduce the value of the company. It merely shifts ownership. Yes, $3 million in cash goes out of the company, but the surviving owners have a higher ownership interest. So they, they actually, their shares might have, are probably the same value. You know, It's offset. So uh, to count the redemption as something that offsets the value of the company would really be a windfall to the surviving shareholders. So it seems pretty clear based on law and logic that the redemption obligation should not offset it. But then again, the 11th Circuit went a different direction in the Blount case. So we have the 8th here in Connolly and the tax court in a prior case called Huntsman who say the redemption obligation does not reduce it. And then we have this 11th Circuit floating out there that says it does. So unfortunately, it's just kind of where you live at this point. Well, best practice probably to play it safe, and I would encourage all of our advisors, financial professionals who listen to this and hear this and think, you know what, that sounds a lot like one of my clients, uh, to reach out to uh, you and your team in advanced sales. This really isn't something that you know most of us are equipped to handle without bringing in uh, you know John here or you know your team of experts and the attorneys and the CPAs to to really sort through this. So. Uh, Very timely and interesting topic, John. We appreciate you joining us. Thank you. My pleasure. And I think that's a great point. You know, even if you don't know for sure that you have a corporation and that you have an entity purchase structure, just reach out to everybody. Just make sure, double check. uh, Yeah, you don't know what they have. And even if they don't fit into this narrow box that this case was on, it's a good idea to review these things anyways. Things get outdated quickly. So I think this is an opportunity for everyone to talk to their clients about their buy-sell plans. And so, yeah, make sure you take a look at that agreement and understand what exactly it's doing. Couldn't agree more. John, thank you for joining us. Thank you. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Crump Life Insurance Services, a leading third-party distributor and service provider of insurance and retirement products, is part of Truist Insurance Holdings Incorporated, the seventh largest insurance broker in the world. Crump supports the distribution of life insurance, annuities, long-term care, linked benefits, disability, and health products with the industry's premier sales and back office support and technology services. Marketing under the following brands, Crump, Truist Life Insurance Services, Risk Rider, Telus, and Time. Source, Business Insurance Magazine, using 2019 brokerage revenue generated, 2020 issue. For financial professional use only, not intended for use in solicitation of sales to the public, not intended to recommend the use of any product or strategy for any particular client or class of clients, for use with non-registered products only. Crump operates under the license of Crump Life Insurance Services, LLC, Arkansas License 10010-3477. Products and programs offered through Crump are not approved for use in all states. Copyright 2023, Crump Life Insurance Services, LLC.